Hello everybody and welcome to Into the Prey, Breaching the Chaos of the Church with Nick and Mary Franks. Welcome to the podcast if this is your first time or maybe you're quite new to the podcast. Just to explain to begin with, really to say that normally the podcast features and publishes much more regularly than it has done over the last three or four months. Reason being I've been away writing and not been able to do all things and so Having finished the manuscript in the last couple of weeks and submitted that to the publisher, I'm now able to give attention again to podcasting. So you'll be seeing more podcasts, more episodes, particularly as Mary and I catch up with some work that we've not been able to do having started. For example, the Gentle and Lowly series, Working Through Dane Ortland's wonderful book, Gentle and Lowly, and textual criticism has been our focus over the last few months over the summer as well, looking at all things relating to textual criticism. If you don't know what that is, check out the um, four or five episodes that we've done on that. But there's more to come. We want to finish that book. We want to finish those two books. So Mary and I will henceforth be back much more regularly now that I'm able to do that. So welcome. Welcome if you're a new listener. Welcome if you're an old listener. Just welcome. I want to say as well, just to update you regarding the book, the second book, In 2019, I wrote a book and released a book, self-published a book called Body Zero, Radical Preparation for the Return of Christ. And as you won't need me to tell you, since 2019, a lot has happened. And this new book, which I I won't give you any other details for just yet, um, it's not fair to say that it's a follow-on from that because that would be a disservice to the book. But It does follow on from Body Zero, and it does begin, I think, to answer some of the questions of, well, what now that some people have in a genuine way? So just wanted to update folk on that, that the manuscript was finished approaching, I don't know, 75,000 words, I think it was. Um, Most likely it will be around that, maybe a bit more, I don't know. But there's an interested publisher. I'm I'm not doing the rounds with this. I'm just exploring one option and... Uh, it would be great for, for many reasons, um, one of which is what I've already mentioned, what I've just said, which is that it, if it was published by the publisher, it would mean I just wouldn't have to think about it much more in terms of um, attending to the process of self-publishing and uh, distribution of the two main things. So it'd be really wonderful for those of you who are interested, for those of you who are praying, please do pray for for the publisher as they read and deliberate and make some decisions, basically. So that will become clearer in the next few weeks, I would have thought, Lord willing. So that's coming. Um, Yeah, I wanted today, what I'm going to do is let you hear the audio from a vlog that I put up onto YouTube yesterday entitled Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons. And it's, to be honest, yeah, it's, it's not an easy focus because of the accusations that come in response. And already that's, you know, one of the areas that I'm not particularly good at and it it never ceases to amaze me of myself. Do you get that when something that you're you're particularly weak in just seems to happen quite regularly and you kind of find yourself thinking, Lord, I really want to be better at this. And one of those areas for me is pausing. A friend once advised me to pause and um that's a good that's a good wisdom that's a good good advice sometimes if somebody pushes your buttons it's very difficult to do that isn't it 
but it's harder to do that at least. And one of the areas that I find myself personally coming into confrontation with on a regular basis is churchmen, other maturer guys who are either church leaders or who form maybe part of a leadership team or who are just older, maturer guys have been in church for decades rather than years or months. And when, if you get a chance to listen to or watch the video, you know, it, it's not light, it's a, not a light subject, is it? And there's there's always a pressure, I think, to try and um, tart something up to, to kind of be maybe more jovial, more lighthearted than it actually is. We're not, we're, to, we're talking about things of eternity. Breaching the chaos of the church is an eternally significant, infinitely important issue, subject. And while it's true that there's joy in the journey, to quote Michael Card, while it's true that David prayed, restore to me the joy of your salvation, Lord, um, there is a, there is also just a, a kind of weight and gravity to the realities that we often are thinking about talking about and that kind of thing. And you can, and those of you who are leading churches, maybe if you're leading a church, if you're a pastor, or if you're part of a leadership team, you may recognize and appreciate just the sense of weariness. There's a weariness in the world. We're coming up to that time of year again, aren't we, with Christmas carols coming and that wonderful line in the carol where it says, a weary world rejoices, um, cantique de Noël. That's about as far as my French goes. But the Silent Night, the original French version of that is a, is a wonderful, wonderfully written hymn. I would encourage you to check the original French version out and read those lyrics because <laughs> because there is serious weight to those lyrics. It's very weighty. In fact, I remember, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago now, I had to lead um, um, a, a choir and band. I, I was a worship pastor of a church in London and I was in charge of the carol service, the Christmas carol service, and th- this song we did, we we did the original French version of it in terms, we didn't sing in French, but we just made sure that the lyrics were the original French lyrics. And the bit in the song, the bit in the carol where it comes to the, the chorus and it says, fall on your knees, oh, hear the angels singing. I can't remember it off the top of my head fully, but the the, the point of the carol is... Fall on your knees, people. You're before you're before the living God. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. All night, divine, all night. When Christ was born. And so on. I actually did a very rough version of that song on a piano two years ago. If you want to see that, I'll put it into the notes. The point I'm making is that the point in world and church history that we're at is very difficult to be light and jovial about. There's a there's a there's a sense of severity to the hour in which we are at. And so when you listen to this next audio now, you're gonna hear me speaking with passion, impassioned, and at the end particularly when I start thinking about faulty forms of leadership that I've been invited into or expected to kind of submit to or whatever. And it's and it's not just in re- recollecting past things that I find enraging sometimes. And it, it won't always be good, 
It won't always be bad. Sometimes anger is good and genuinely righteous. It's not a cliche. It's true. Um, and sometimes it's not. But the, what I'm trying to what I'm trying to say is that there is a there is something wrong if we're just kind of like constantly, you know, trying to make something that's eternally weighty and significant not so just to appease the populace or the masses or the crowds. And so, what you'll hear from me in this, particularly towards the end of this focus on elders and deacons and and standard of church leadership is just that and my honest raw feelings on it and of course then what happens is that I think tends to provoke responses typically from other church leaders I've had a couple of church leaders in the last couple of weeks who've written to me and clearly you know when you're reading a comment on a, a video or in some form of social media if you use that you can tell can't you immediately I think, where somebody's at. And within seconds, you can tell where there's a tone, what the motivation is, where they're coming from. And I don't always do very well in responding to the rather predictable responses from, from men who are, in many ways, mature, seasoned men, but I think fundamentally sometimes just cannot see the wood for the trees. So I hope this session is helpful looking at Tabiti. Tabiti... Anya Bawali, I can't say his name. He's a he's a chap from America, basically, Tabiti. And I hope that you enjoy this session. I hope you find it helpful. And, and as always, we hope that the sessions get you to think about maybe difficult decisions and questions, conversations and prayers that may help to lead you forward into faithfulness. The devil wants that. On the one half is the blessing camp and on the other half is the repent camp. That's what the devil wants, okay? And that is what's happening. But actually... It comes back to this misunderstanding of what it means to to know and worship and love a good God. Is that the blessing is the repentance. God, for all intents and purposes, needn't be there. And we need to recapture a sense of the godness of God, the greatness of God, the majesty of God. Greetings, guys. I want to do a video today about finding faithful elders and deacons. And this book here that has come to my desk by Tabiti Anya Bawali, or Anya Bawili. I can't say his name, I'm sorry. It's an African name. I will refer to him henceforward as the author. Um, I started this year, 2022. I'd actually emailed five men who I know and considered and consider to be high quality men faithful brothers who I would listen to, seek advice from, that kind of thing. And with the desire to have some oversight, to develop some accountability, despite the fact that that was already happening on a kind of one-to-one basis with one or two of them. And through the process of doing that, at the beginning of this year, I realized that actually it's not as simple as that, that finding men who are faithful in the sense of understanding and hearing what God is saying to the church at this time. It wasn't as simple as that. I'm just trying to explain in this video through this book, reference to this book, why that is. The title of the book, Finding Faithful Elders and Deacons, is slightly ambiguous, to be honest. When I saw it, I initially read it from my own point of view, not thinking how it was... The author wrote it. Finding 
faithful elders and deacons is from the perspective of a senior leader looking to develop his leadership team, not from the perspective of a disciple looking for a faithful church or a faithful elder to be submitted to. So it is slightly ambiguous. Um, But what I'm wanting to say today, through reference to my own experiences and what I see of the church today, is that the overall task of finding a faithful elder or deacon or church is not as straightforward as it should be. This is where I want to just quote a little bit from the book to begin with. It's in the introduction, page 16, and under the subtitle, How Not to Use This Book. The author says, This book is not a source book for leading witch hunts and rebellions against leaders. Pause. Mary and I have experienced that. Hopefully we'll never experience it again, but it's possible, maybe even likely that we will. It's a, it's a uniquely horrible thing, distressing, very painful, very dirty, demonic and ugly, and we've experienced it. So I'm in full agreement and full accord that this is certainly not how this book should be being used or indeed should ever be a reality anyway. There's a wasted opportunity here, however. He goes on to say, shepherds are not perfect men. Of course, amen. Though God sets the bar for pastoral ministry necessarily high, he uses the poles of grace to support that bar. Again, amen. Then he goes on to say, users should keep the Lord's grace in mind as they read, lest an overly critical, gospel-forgetting, judgmental attitude develop. Few things are as harmful as the Lord's people becoming censorious toward the Lord's under-shepherds. I think the author here has missed something. And this is where Crossway, this is how I came across this book, by the way, it's by Crossway. This is what Crossway do all the time. They pump out material that, very it's very subtle this, but it's there, which is to say, if you have questions about your leadership, your church leadership, the elders, or even the deacons, or maybe you're in a church that doesn't have an elder deacon model, and, and maybe reading your Bible and thinking, why don't we? And to begin to ask... it. When you begin to ask questions, it's very, very, it's a lazy stereotype, but it often happens that you become very quickly labeled as a as a kind of, well, just in, in the way that he said it there, o- overly critical or censorious or judgmental. And that's a very paralyzing thing. I think it's a, I think it's a, a part of the fear of man. As a, as a tool or a weapon of that particular uh, snare that, that has a profound effect on, on most of us in some way. Nobody wants to be overly critical or nobody wants that, do they? No, you don't want, we don't want to be known as being overly critical or to be living with that internal atmosphere in your life, in your heart and in your mind. And in... So there's, there's this pressure that comes where can I ask about this without becoming overly judgmental or critical or censorious? And I think the author's missed that here. He's, he's, he talks in here about the prerequisite of humility within elders and, and deacons, and yet within that, it would have been good at the beginning of this book for there to have been an acknowledgement that the general state of the church is not good, and that therefore the general state of leadership, eldership, is not good. Um, and that's a shame. Now, that could be ignorance, i.e. because of intense denominational conditioning, there's just a sense of being oblivious to 
to that, but I can't imagine that. Or it's pride. It's one of the two. You know, you're either genuinely oblivious to the wider landscape of the church outside of your own point of reference, which is not good anyway, or you are. It seems more likely that you can't you can't genuinely of a man of this intelligence. But so there's there's an element of pride and arrogance here, which again is not in keeping with the standards of humility. There needs to be more humility, particularly in evangelical leaders, and particularly within those evangelical leaders that Crossway promote toward humility that listens. Pr- just listen. The book is divided into two halves, broadly speaking, dealing with deacons and then elders and then within elders of course you have pastors and uh, essentially what that is is a first among equals i think that's what he means he talks about the joy of going into a restaurant being waited on in a way that's a pleasure and not distracting that's serving and not intrusive and i think that's very good to understand from act six read act six in your own time if you will just see see where where this this whole notion or, or, or model, if you like, of, of deacons comes from the moment in the early church exploding into life and the apostles realizing that they can't do everything. They need there to be a way of the ministry of the word and of prayer being protected and nurtured. So they needed other men to to deal with those things like clearing the food and serving the food and everything that that represents in the life of the modern church, which, of course, may include literally serving and and washing up. However, it is a spiritual role. This is not a menial task to be a a deacon. A deacon shouldn't be somebody that can just produce spreadsheets willy-nilly or is necessarily good with numbers. This is a spiritual office in the same way that elders are spiritual offices, There's a difference of authority, there's a difference of function in the same way that husbands and wives have different roles and functions with equality at the base. Um, But the the analogy that the author uses of going into a restaurant and having that joyous experience, we'll all have had it where it's it's tip-worthy. You know, you just want to bless somebody with a tip because they've looked after you really well. They've listened to what you want and don't like. They've recommended things and, you know, and I think the the role of the deacon um, in the life of the church, from my pers- from my experience and my perspective, is one that I've, I've never really seen functioning. You know, often you have different versions that bypass biblical examples. So the biblical example is elders and deacons, okay? Let's just take that for the biblical standard. And either you have Anglican examples where you have parochial church councils, you have a vicar or a vicar's wife, a parochial church council that are made up of whoever. And in terms of church leadership and power, and this is why I've written on the death and dearth of spiritual authority in recent months, is because from reference to seeing that happen where the vicar is really usurped by his wife, and then on top of that, You've got a parochial church council made up of members, some of whom don't even want the vicar to be doing the vicar's job. It's a joke. It's a dog's dinner. And yet this is what we see commonly within that Anglican world in terms of understanding what it might have be to have a church with elders and deacons who are faithful. So you have that nonsense. And then you have a similar nonsense within, evangel- uh, within charismatic Pentecostal type churches. 
I've been in a setup like this myself, you know, where you have an AOG, Pentecostal, whatever church, you have a disaster of husband and wife teams in different vineyard churches or Elim setups as well. But in AOG, you know, they have like a senior leader and maybe an associate. I was an associate under a guy at one point for a year or, or whatever, baptism by fire. And then you have a church council made up of a bunch of people who, again, might look after certain departments within a church. They might be looking after the finances. They might be trustees. I don't know. It, it, it The role of a deacon is not just an admin role. It's not just a, a lesser version of the pastor to rubber stamp and tick off and sign off everything that the, the senior leader wants. The, the accountability there is very questionable. And I've seen that. I've seen that from firsthand experience. The way that elders and deacons are supposed to work, but particularly within the team of elders that I'll come to in a minute, is that there's genuine accountability, not just the senior leader, as in the case of charismatic churches often, just having their wishes and their desires and their intentions signed off. You know, if you've if you've listened to the rise and fall of Mars Hill on Christianity Today's podcast series, you'll have you'd have seen Mark Driscoll do that to the nth degree, and it's not good. It's not healthy. So whether you have Anglican parochial church councils and vicars' wives, or you have the the charismatic versions of a senior leader and pretty much nothing else, this is not what the Bible is teaching. So I recommend the book for digging into that breath of fresh air that is to look at deacons and their roles, particularly and how they relate with elders. Let's let's talk about elders now, because the question is, how do we find faithful elders? And again, think you can think of it in terms of finding members for your team, and it's right to do that, but it's I think the most pressing thing at this moment in world and church history is, how do we find faithful elders for ourselves? How do we find faithful churches, which is really what we're talking about? And this is where the book goes off the, the, the track a little bit. Um, I want to quote another bit here from page 55. If you happen to have, if you happen to have your, the book or if you get it, just, just couldn't believe this. This is on page 53, sorry, where he's talking under a subtitle, traits to watch for. So again, he's thinking about trying to find members to develop his team with. And these are the traits, the four traits that he mentions we should be looking for in an elder. A man, a man who is qualified to be an elder. The very first thing, the very first thing. Take note of those men who regularly attend the church services and the church's business meetings. I've not just made that up. It's here in black and white. The first thing, the first trait to look for in a man who should be an elder is a man who prioritises church meetings and business meetings. Now, I'm not saying that punctuality and attendant, regular attendance are unimportant. Of course not. How are you going to run a church with men who don't turn up? My point here is that if this is the first thing that's in your mind when you're thinking about, is this man good material? Is this man being called by the Lord to be an elder for this congregation? The first thing in your mind is, do they turn up to, reg to meetings regularly and do they go to the business meetings? There's something lacking. There's something deficient here. There's a disconnect. 
there's a disconnect between the Bible and the world that we live in. Let me explain. If I was writing my top four traits to look for in an elder that I would either want to be in my team or that I, whose team I would want to be in myself, it would be, it wouldn't be regular <laughs> business meeting attendance. It would be, is there travail and distress in his heart? Is there demonstrable evidence consistently that this man has an awareness of the, of the church in the world and is commensurately distressed by that reality? What kind of scripture is he often speaking about? Psalm 119, David's own lament, tearing his clothes, ash in the air, lamenting. Your law is being broken, Lord. It's time for you to act. That kind of awareness of the church, the body of Christ outside of his own camp. That's the number one thing I would be looking for. The Above all things, the hallowing of the name of of God, the hallowing of the Father, the honour of the name of Jesus Christ, and the distress that's only appropriate given the state of the church across the board. It's not in this book. And I don't care when it was written. It, sh it could have been written 200 years ago and it should still be there. But the fact that it's written in 2010, which is relatively recently, and for it not to be there is such a concern to me it's, it's not enough to say, oh, the men should be attending meetings regularly. That's not the priority. That's not the first, what's going on with this man? Of course, the other things here are good. You know, he talks also about looking for men who are already serving and functioning in some kind of pastoral way before giving anything like an official title. Those men who show respect and trust in the existing leadership. But again, that's good. Be patient and note those who who evidence the desire over time. You know, the Bible says that he who desires to be an overseer or an elder desires a noble task. And by definition, if you're not desiring it, it's ignoble. So it's not all bad is what I'm saying. But the first thing to look for in an elder, potential elder, is that they attend business meetings regularly. This is something other than biblical culture. Can you see that? When we're considering either which church to be in, which elders to be under, or which elders to be a part of, or which elders to include, there needs to be a, a, a different list of traits to watch for. My feeling on that is that this is an evidence of what I would call generational compounding of intense denominational conditioning, where young men are, as he alludes to at the beginning of this book, are spotted by other men, generation or two above him, who have all most likely been to the same kind of seminaries or Bible colleges, who all have the very same kind of narrow American evangelical reformed line of sight. And it then means what you're reproducing is the same in terms of your understanding of what's faithful to the biblical New Testament understanding of being an elder and a deacon. You know, in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, again, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Is what's being imitated, is the, is the model that's being given worthy of emulation? Is, is it, is it Christ-like leadership that we're seeing here that doesn't acknowledge the weakness in the church, 
the, the, the reality of not only the possibility that elders might need to be criticised, but actually to welcome that, to expect and anticipate it, and for it not to be the result, the result of it not to be that somebody is, is blacklisted. Generational reproduction here is huge. It's massive. If we look briefly at Ephesians 4, we'll see that there's a fivefold office of... He talks in, in the book about offices, pastor being one of them, of course, but there's another four, evangelist, apostle, prophet, and teacher. Now, pastor-teacher is often like this, hand in hand, and you would expect that, I would say. You know, teaching, for example, is a prerequisite of being an elder. Um, but the But the problem within finding elders that are faithful is that often you have to make a choice between having a top-heavy pastoral teaching eldership team or or none at all. Why? Because often what happens is this. You end up having men who all think the same kind of way, have the same kind of gifting and calling, and who produce fruit in the same kind of way, who might pray the same kind of way, but I think, crucially, who think the same kind of way. Evangelists think very differently to pastors. And prophets think very differently to evangelists, as do apostles. You know, this is why there's different offices for very good reason. But normally when we talk about elders, we're talking about pastor, teacher. We're not talking about evangelists, apostles and prophets. And the church is all the worse for that. So in the question of finding faithful elders and deacons, what we should be talking about is finding faithful fivefold elders and deacons um, and that that's what a plurality of eldership should mean for the benefit of the body of Christ as a whole, the individual congregation and every member that makes makes it up, which leads me to the point on leadership. If we go to Romans 12, we see Paul in that chapter talking about leaders, gifts, different kinds of gifts, and one of which is leadership. Now, if you go to Mattersea Hall or St. Melitus as two classic examples of Christian training institutions in this country, it doesn't make you a leader, does it? If you suddenly have a moment in central London, I've done my, I've done my, my career in law, I'm going to be a vicar, and then go to St. Melitus for three years, and then they churn you out on their conveyor belt of vicars, it doesn't make you a spiritual leader, does it? It doesn't give you spiritual authority. But people think that it does. The very reverend Joe Sif blogs. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't result in the ability of being a leader of men. You might know how to waft some things around or read some liturgy that has its place, probably, but does it mean that you know how to interpret the signs of the times like the men of Issachar, for example? Does it mean that you have the ability to find others who you can legitimately form a faithful church with? Or are you the product of something very different? I think the lack of leadership in pastoral eldership roles is a major part of the problem. A leader, an elder, should be able to talk boldly and consistently about the abhorrence of abortion. Does that happen in your church? Or is it that there's never anything said about that or transgenderism or the disgrace that marriage being redefined is? Is it that your, your leaders, your elders, aren't willing to unsettle the culture of a church for 
at this at the risk of there being a decrease in bums on seats leadership that would seek in my own experience that wanted to, to for me to imitate their leadership with the assumption that they were imitating Christ 1 Corinthians 11 1 if i had imitated the pastor when i was a teenager in church i would have just i would have turned a blind eye to sexual sin in the church i would have said nothing about it i would have consistently refused to confront it for fear of upset within the church if i was imitating him i would never have said anything about abortion never saying anything about abortion i would never have taught the church about the prevalence of suffering in 2 timothy the people of god being prepared to stand at the end of the age calling for the lord to return with suffering at the ep- i would never if i was to imitate that now that's not leadership that's not the kind of leadership i would follow if you watch um have you ever watched dreamworks the the film called brave absolutely classic and it's worth watching just for for comedy value in in the in the comedy in the in the brave film you have the the suitors brought before the king and the queen for their princess daughter to be married to and they have the the clans and tribes of various different places um through Scotland and their their sons are put forward and none of them are, are suitable they're not suitors it's just a joke it's very very funny but would you follow any of them into war no would you follow a pastor into war who doesn't say anything about abortion would you follow uh, a, an elder a, a pastor elder into war into battle who doesn't ever vocalize anything about homosexuality the centrality of marriage as a picture on the earth of of who god is who are you following who are you listening to are they suitable elders are they faithful i think we have churches a plenty being led by men and or women who aren't called or gifted to lead i think we have churches filled with people fulfilling functions that they're not called or gifted in what how can you possibly say that franks when you see pastors being unwilling to confront problems so as to get to the root of the issue when you see pastors not willing to address with boldness marriage redefined transgenderism homosexuality abortion whatever it is the socio-cultural ills of the age you're not seeing a david-esque leader who's able to kill and destroy bears and lions what you're seeing is some form of cowardice and i don't think that's i don't think that's faithful to what an elder should be when i was asked recently about accountability and oversight in my own life the question that that came to my own mind that at the time felt quite weak it felt quite weak in my mind and in my mouth even though i knew it was true which was to ask the question what did john the baptist do for oversight who who was the accountability partner of john the baptist and at the time it was before i then i then spoke to a couple of friends and just wanted to know what they were doing for accountability and that kind of thing and one of my friends replied in exactly the same way as me now he didn't know what i'd said 
or what I was thinking. He just replied word for word what I said. What did John the Baptist do for for accountability and oversight? And in that moment, I was so encouraged. He understands. He understands what you see, Nick. He knows that this isn't just cliche and poetic device, that's, that there is a spiritual reality here that means that finding finding faithful elders and deacons oversight accountability, like I said at the very beginning, isn't as simple as that. The question isn't finding, am I looking for them? It's, are they locatable? Are they findable? Do they exist? Do men exist who are able to provide oversight and accountability to men today who are determining to come away from the institution because of its unfaithfulness, would John the Baptist have been, would it have been appropriate for John the Baptist to have found an accountability partner or a a parochial church council or a council of trustees from within the mainstream of Jerusalem? Of course it wouldn't. He'd been called out with that. This then brings us on to the issue of how we understand spiritual realities. We talk about believing in Jesus returning, but we can't conceive of a leadership today in the church that is comparable to John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus to come the first time. We talk about the gift of prophecy. We think about it and say, yes, 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 yes. That's what the Bible says. But then when it comes to the realities that that produces, which is a separation from the mainstream, which therefore integrally involves a separation from people speaking into you from the mainstream, our minds blow. We start freaking out. We can't handle it because we don't really believe that Jesus is coming because otherwise we would just believe we'd be very comfortable in our thoughts that, of course, there's going to be a a form of faithful elder and deacon. In other words, a form of faithful church and church leadership that is going to be appropriate for the disruption of the church on the earth at the time leading up to the time that Jesus then finally comes, whether in our lifetime or not. Why is it that we can conceive of men on the earth in a role and function running up to the first coming of Jesus, but we can't, within the New Covenant and the New Testament, running up to the period when he comes for the second and final time? Why is that? It's like cessationists throwing out the gifts of the Holy Spirit but they're perfectly happy to believe that the Virgin Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It is like that. When, if your response to the answer of accountability and oversight, when your response to the answer, well, what did John the Baptist do? If your response to that is exasperation and eye rolling and huffing and puffing, it reveals, I think, a disconnect between the things that we say we believe and the way that we anticipate God fulfilling those things. Finding faithful elders and deacons is not like going to an American evangelical reformed college seminary. It doesn't look like deciding, right, I've done my lawyer thing, I'm going to be a vicar, so I'm going to go to St. Melitus in London. It looks like submitting to the Holy Spirit. It looks like desiring the gifts of the spirit, especially the gift of prophecy, and then not trying to box and categorize what the Holy Spirit does. What are you doing for accountability and oversight? When the answer 
what did John the Baptist do? That that question, that response comes from a, a reality. And my friend Steve Buckley knows this. He and I have spoken. And when he gave that same answer, it was like sanity. This is why your testimony is somebody else's sanity. In that moment, I knew that was the Holy Spirit reassuring me that what I'd said in response to that question was very legitimate and it wasn't something just to be dismissed. What would John the Baptist have done for accountability. Who was his who was his oversight? Well, let, let me show you that now quickly from scripture. This is John chapter one. I'm just going to read verses 29 to 34. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 30, this is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him. I didn't know him, Jesus. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. We know that Jesus is coming as the one who doesn't baptize by water, but by fire, by the Holy Spirit. Verse 32, and John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on Jesus Christ. I myself did not know him again. I didn't know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. Who was John the Baptist accountable with? Who was his oversight? It's verse 33. I myself did not know Jesus, so he wasn't accountable to Jesus. But he who sent me to baptize, who had sent him to ba- who had sent John to baptize with water? Well, it wasn't Jesus. It was the Father. He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, "He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain." That's the Father talking of the Son. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist was accountable with the Father. His oversight was with the Father. His counsel was with the Father. It was wholly inappropriate, would have been wholly inappropriate for John to have sought elders, deacons, spiritual support oversight from the mainstream, from those who couldn't see further than the palm of their hand. That's not to say that the leadership of the church that is reforming today, the prophetic church that's preparing for the return of Christ, somehow doesn't need elders, doesn't need oversight, quite quite the contrary, which is why I'm I'm commending this book to you. As as the faithful plantings of the Lord happen, Jeremiah 1.10, as the uprooting and the tearing down happens unto the planting that comes, we need a plurality of elders, we need a plurality of deacons, and we need those guys to be men. (laughs) But it also means that you can't, you cannot, cooperate 
with accountability and oversight with men who can't see, who aren't willing to listen. When men like myself and my other friend Steve, who share this experience of desiring against the fact that we're accused of not desiring, we don't, you guys just don't want to be teachable, you just don't want to be... It's actually the opposite. And there is a distress that comes by then looking at the leaders that you've been led by in your youth, brought up with through your formative years and thinking, what a joke. The pastor that took me into his office as a young man and wanted to train me up in the way to go was also the same man who turned his eye to sexual sin in the church, in his church. Never talked about abortion, never talked about Christ coming, never talked about the suffering of the people of God who were faithful. And you're going to tell me that I need to be accountable with them, overseen by them. It is a disgrace. And God is doing something in men today that Jordan Peterson hasn't got a clue about. He's preparing the kind of shepherds who are going to transcend all lazy stereotype of what a pastor is. Namby-pamby. Yes, sir. No, sir. Three bags full, sir. Have you got a hoop there? I'd like to jump through it, please. Pastors, leaders, elders, men of God who are able to kill lions and bears with the ingenuity of a sling and a stone or two. What does it mean to be an elder and a deacon? It means to be one endowed with spiritual authority from the Messiah. It means to be faithful to all of scripture. It means to be bold to stand in the face of the Antichrist and to proclaim that Christ alone is king. There is only one Lord and his name is not Caesar. It means being willing to bring the harsher word as well as the more soothing word. It means being willing to uproot and tear down as well as planting. It means willing to be running the gauntlet of being accused to be the worst enemy of the church in the hope of seeing her built up in love. That's what it means. And central within that, I think, will be an accusation. You don't want an elder. You don't want a leader. Finding faithful elders and deacons is not primarily a question of developing your church leadership team. This is not a book that really should have been written from the perspective of an elder trying to develop his team. It should have been written from the level and the perspective and the travailing grief of the vast majority of us who can't even find a faithful elder or deacon because you can't find a faithful church in which faithful elders and deacons function as given in the word of God. I'd still encourage you to read it. Thank you for listening to this video. It's not as simple a question as you might think. Maranatha, may he come and may his will be done. Amen. Thank you everybody for listening. If you'd like to be part of our support team to help produce this content, basically what is a full-time volunteer ministry, please come through to our Patreon website where you can join a small team of supporters and help make this happen, basically. We're looking in the long term to reduce 
work in other areas for Mary particularly. So if you want to help facilitate that, we'd love to hear from you. If you want to talk about that, discuss that, hear what our plans are for that, please do drop us a line.